Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we are talking about normal. So Lisa, I thought it would be interesting to address what normalcy is as Biden is entering office in the early days of his administration, because so much of his campaign was framed around like a restoration of normalcy. Um, And I wanted to talk about like what does that mean getting back to normal like is that um a good political goal (laughs) at all um and and what actually does it mean so i think in the way that he's trying to use it he's talking about civic norms okay so when he says get back to normal he's really talking about a series of you know, in some ways complicated, in some some ways not civic norms about how we understand, participate, and feel politics. So I think for Biden, he, getting back to normal and returning us to normalcy is really an affective or emotional appeal about not having to live through the police brutality and the uncertainty and anxiety and anti-black and brownness and anti-queer and anti-woman economic anxiety, and COVID anxiety. So I object to normalcy as the frame because it is a return to, so it's producing a nostalgia for a time in the past that was honestly terrible for a lot of people. So returning to it is shitty wages and no childcare support and no FMLA and a shitty infrastructure that's crumbling and an aversion to talking about climate change and over-policing and too much incarceration and, 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 and. And so I don't like the backwards frame ever for moments that call for bold progressive action like this one, times of crisis. I understand that people who live in fear want to return to a moment when they didn't feel like they were living in fear. But I think that it's such a white perspective and it's, it, it shows, it demonstrates a real lack of awareness about how bad things are for so much of the country that it's probably unethical and bad. But I understand that he wants to think about normal as a, a pattern of expected behavior. Like when you vote, you should be allowed to cast your vote. You shouldn't be turned away. And, you know, we should be able to count on uh, members of Congress to not incite riots and, and, and. So, I mean, on the one hand, he is talking about institutions having social prestige and power and a return to that when government functions. And on the other hand, that's also always already an ideal and it's not working for a lot of people. So even though it's a fantasy of like the American dream, it's not working for everybody. What do you think about that, Laura? Yeah, to me, like return to normal is like another side of the MAGA coin. It's exactly the same thing. It's interesting to me because I think it's all a part of this like mythology that we have about ourselves and American exceptionalism. It's rooted in the experiences of a really small (laughs) subset of people. So I don't think that most people identify with return to normal 
but they definitely want a return to like some semblance of civility. His use of the word soul of the nation really means like um, politeness, <laughs> you know, which doesn't appeal to me as a political motiva- motivation because it's like, I don't want to be polite. I want universal basic income and I want my health care and it's too little, too late, whatever the admi- administration is promising. For me, I, I didn't see a vision other than looking backwards. You know, vision, I don't think is about normalcy. What we think of as normal is so narrow and it's lazy. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because his public address to this point is either campaign discourse or in this interregnum period where the president is a loser and is still has all this political power in the White House, but is not, you know, staying in power. And so I feel like his acceptance speech on the night on the night that the election was, you know, called, that's a genre. So he's producing normalcy because there are expectations about speech that are genre bound and also body bound, right? So that's how men talk about shit is that we're going to return to a thing where I did the thing best or, you know, my people produced it, whatever. And so it's hyper, hyper masculine it's, and it's hyper white. And, you know, even Barack Obama did it because the conventions are hyper masculine and hyper white. And so he needed to perform that because the genre called for it. I think Biden has done better, actually, once he's out of that genre of, you know, either campaign or the acceptance speech and it's policy focused and it's calling out what's wrong with the way that the Trump administration was inflaming, you know, white supremacy and rioting in the last couple of weeks. So I think Biden has done better there. But the call to normal, like, you know, normal, the connotations around normal are conformance, right? Conforming, conventionality, uh, ordinary and unexceptional, right? Behavior, habits, and what we habituate middle of the road and a lack of conflict. So when we think about normal, we're really talking about standardization and we're talking about a lack of conflict and the conflict's already here, right? So I think you're right that the civility is an important part of the way that Biden approaches politics. And I think for me, the thing that's hidden in the conversation about normalcy is the discipline required to produce it. So for me, you know, watching, let's say, higher ed's lack of response to authoritarianism in the Trump years or the austerity that followed Bush through the entirety of the Obama years, their higher ed's passivity to this shit and allowing this lack of funding to be normal is trash. It's fucking trash. And I'm surrounded by colleagues that don't want to agitate for any more resources or there's no vision for how to expand higher ed's role in producing a different kind of body politic or a different kind of civic engagement or a different kind of awareness of power or a different kind of ethics. There's absolutely zero conversation about that. So I find the calls to be normal or act normal or return to normalcy so fucking offensive. Because what it's really asking us to do is to cultivate a kind of political passivity that condemns our neighbors to suffering. And it's trash politics, quite frankly. Everyone, especially leaders in particular, just want everything to carry on like it's normal because they were benefiting before. And uh, any change threatens that. 
it's but it's frustrating because it's like I, I think it's highlighting that we have this inflexibility to adapt. A lot of institutions and people in power rely on you assuming that things just have like are a certain way that they're immutable. And for example, like with colleges and how they're responding in the pandemic, no changes in tuition, <laughs> few changes to how they're conducting classes and different times call <laughs> for changes in your approach and the inability for institutions to do that um i think is troubling yeah i mean on the one hand it's really hard because the institutions need support in an era where the institutions have been destroyed and on the other hand it's hard to support the institutions when they suck so poorly right so like you know i want to support education as a pillar of progressive you know multicultural democracy and also it's full of passive white supremacists. So, you know, both of those things are true at the same time. And it creates a lot of ambivalence, certainly in me, about how to participate in institutions, you know, well. I want to I buy books and I want them as soon as possible. And I, you know, I understand the role that Amazon fills in the book space, right? That's how it started. That's how I've always used it. And also Bezos doesn't deserve all that money while he forces his workers to work with shitty wages and with less health care and fewer protections, especially in COVID. So both of those things can be true at the same time. It's not that I think the profits have to be necessarily weaponized against the people, but they are. So it doesn't have to be that way. We can disaggregate those things and we can raise the minimum wage and decrease CEO pay. And everything will also continue to, to function. So they are not mutually exclusive, but I think that the way that we think about normal is zero sum. So you get something and that means I necessarily get nothing. And sometimes that's the case in terms of race. And sometimes it's not the case because it's just part of the fantasy of power in the way that we understand how, you know, institutions work. But I think it creates a real conundrum for people who want to do sort of progressive work in and around institutions because they are so conservative and they're so calcified and they lack imagination beyond the disciplining to the norm. I also think it's normal is bullshit. So, you know, obviously I do sex, gender, race work and normal is a lie, you know, as, you know, a biological thing or as a social thing. So when we think about behavior, the normal is, is irregularity and nonconformity. So, and I guess I just really feel like normal is a giant lie that is disciplining so much of our behavior in ways that are really antisocial and anti-collective and toxic that I, I think we should be very, very skeptical of normal as a, a way of orienting political power for sure. It's weird because for a country that prioritizes freedom so much, we also culturally place a lot of constraints on people's behaviors and appearances. And, you know, like we accept a really narrow set of ways of living. Like what freedoms are we protecting? Like your freedom to get up and go to work. Yeah, it's weird to have that emphasis on uh, like a rhetoric like freedom and have it apply only to a really narrow set of behaviors. And lifestyles. I mean, well, that's because four people are talking about freedom and they all storm the Capitol in their riot gear. 
those are the people, those are the only people talking about freedom. Liberals never talk about freedom. They don't care about freedom. They don't think about freedom. They don't, they don't think about their own freedom or getting other people free. Freedom is not a centerpiece of democratic discourse inside of the party like ever. And the only people who talk about it inside of the party are people of color because they are fundamentally unfree. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a discourse of freedom. I think we would all be better served to talk more about freedom than normalcy for sure. What are the preconditions for freedom? What do we want to be freedom from? And what do we want freedom to do? I mean, how do we operationalize freedom as a part of everyday solidarity in our communities? What does it mean to produce freedom in a capitalist economy? Who needs to be more free? I, I mean, we have a lot of questions about freedom that I should think should animate our ethics and don't. So I have never been in a room at a job where we talked about freedom ever, never. Never, never. It's certainly not in higher ed. So what does that mean? That the education professionals are not thinking about freedom? I mean, that is the saddest ass thing. It is the worst part of being a grown-up is working with a bunch of people who are not preoccupied with freedom, but are, who are concerned about being liked. Like pleasing in, in almost every sector of public life is more important than freedom. In some ways, people are thinking about freedom because they're thinking about money. <laughs> And money is a way to create freedom for yourself, right? And being liked um, as far as it's like a fundamental, like human need for social support. A lot of times in the workplace, it's also about money. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that desire like for money, it's not about collective freedom for sure, right? But it is kind of about securing it for yourself. So there's never enough money. So they continue to work and work and work and push people to work and work and work. And they, they talk in terms of extracting labor from other people. Their metaphors are about fracking cash. That is not about freedom. That's about hoarding. And that's why white people love shows about hoarding, whether it's like Kim Kardashian's house and all the shit that she's hoarding in it, or whether it's poor old people with mental illnesses and all the newspapers and cats that they hoard. White people love to be entertained by their own hoarding. They will take any excuse of precarity to hoard. I mean, that is, about, is not about freedom. It's about hoarding. And I think anytime they want to pretend like it's about freedom, it's bullshit. Because what they really want is to be able to have the power to decide what other people do with their time, not really how they're getting free themselves. And I think, you know, the fact that maybe I just see it because higher ed is like bloated with middle management. And so it is the most petty instantiations of power ever. It is the most narrow, boring, banal, right, uh, operationalization of power. Um, and it's self-serving as shit and it's so white supremacist. So Maybe it's because that is the space that I am grounded in professionally, but I, I, I would say even when they're pursuing cash, that is maybe the most transparent place where it's not about freedom and it's really just about uh, keeping up with the Joneses. If you are blatant about pursuing money in that way, people think that you're a psychopath, right? So. Do they? I don't think that they do. I think that that's celebrated. I think about like every single Michael Douglas movie ever. I'm just thinking about like sociopathy and aspirational capitalism. I don't know that you're, I don't think that they think about it that way. I think that they think that that's normal. When we think about normal and we think about capitalism, we think about normalizing sociopathy as the most, the purest or the most exceptional form of devotion to capital, to the golden cow. So 
I don't think they're thinking about freedom. I think normalcy is like the opposite. It's an evacuation of freedom. I I see normalcy as an evacuation of freedom and that it constrains how I feel like I can act. And it constrains like the language I have to like describe myself. One thing that normal does is it makes like differences less legible, you know, and less accessible. So like that's a problem in a plural democracy to see differences illegible. It's a lack of cultural competency and a lack of empathy. So for me, um, empathy is, is not normal. So that's something that I would like to normalize, (laughs) like us prioritizing, like as a culture, empathy. But you're right that um, when you were talking about the fact that sociopathy is actually what's been normalized because of our, how we've structured our sense of selves through consumption. And success. What we have normalized is like the most brutal (laughs) way of treating each other. So it's like, how then, how do you make empathy more normal? Not something that's weird. So yeah, I think in the Trump administration, we've seen the proliferation of memes that are like, if if you don't know how to care for other people, or, you know, if you're not concerned with other people, I really don't know what to tell you. And I think that they are pointing to a dissatisfaction in the empathy skills uh, that people see in their communities. But that's not surprising because empathy is something that has to be taught. It's a complex skill set that has to be modeled and it, it usually has to be modeled when you're young. So what does it say that the normal culture is a culture, you know, American culture is fundamentally producing antipathy and antisocial behavior as a precondition of Americanness. The thing is, is that it's fundamentally about property, because if we if we all had closer to the same levels of capital and property, then the differences wouldn't create such hostility. So, you know, for example, if you teach your kids that poor people are bad or homeless people are immoral or poverty is wrong or the people who are poor don't have anything to contribute, it's no wonder that they produce racism. So, you know, or if you say women can't do X or queer people are bad because why, all that does is create an entire scaffolded public culture that is anti-empathetic. And the, the baseline for that is property. So if people, it's not like we all have the same skin in the game, and I'm using skin there intentionally, because we don't have the same skin in the game. But if we had closer to an approximated shared sense of political power, capital, and investment in our communities, a return on that investment, then we would be able to produce empathy because we're closer together. It's one of the reasons why you see happiness being higher in, say, you know, uh, really, really ethno-nationalist countries that are culturally very homogenous. So Japan and Iceland and almost all the Scandinavian countries, they have higher degrees of happiness because they don't have so much difference where people are trying to fuck over other populations because they look different from them, right? They, with the exception of Denmark, they didn't have colonial histories, 
you know, in Iceland, say, or Sweden, Japan is different, but they didn't have colonial history. So that the slave guilt cycle is not part of the way that they understand rights. So if you want to have a culture that normalizes empathy, then the normal has to be that everyone actually has the same amount of shit, whether it's property or whether it's rights or close, close to that. So, I mean, a country that rewards mega gazillionaires with social power is never going to have a culture that normalizes empathy. They are fundamentally opposite. There are all of these like perverse incentives where the wrong things get normalized. Empathy is not the norm. School shootings are the norm. They happen all the time. Gun violence is a norm. You know, that is a perverse normal. You know, our current normal is that 4,000 people a day are dying from the coronavirus. And we're treating that as, it's not normal. Uh, You know, that kind of death is horrific. But, you know, that is kind of the public response. Like, But it's violence. Violence is normal in the United States. Like, if you read European or non-Western papers, all they do is caricature or report on massive numbers of violence and trauma in the United States. And I think because everybody, the people who live here are so desensitized to it, they don't understand that it's the baseline. So whether it's domestic violence or whether it's gun violence or whether it's the violence of minority health outcomes or whether it's police brutality or, you know, the violence of incarceration or food insecurity or housing insecurity and homelessness, all of those things are the American dream. They're essential features. They've always been here. They will always be here unless we make serious decisions to normalize our expectations and our identity around a flattening of inequality, period. I mean, so I I think that the normal here is definitely violence. Well, I think that's the normal in a lot of places, which begs the question, like, how much of what we consider normal is about power. It's funny because I don't watch a lot of TV and so I'm catching up on it because of the pandemic and I'm watching Game of Thrones, which is pretty violent. And all I could think about, I'm on like the, 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 I'm starting the last season, is how shows like Game of Thrones are also fantasy scapes for normalizing brutality. And so I'm really curious about you know, serial television, especially on cable, I'm thinking about The Sopranos as the beginning of the bookend and Game of Thrones as, the, as a moment right now of thinking about sociopathy and brutality and fantasizing about violence as the major glue of power. Um, and one of the things that I, I like about Game of Thrones, although I don't know that I would say that I, I describe the series as something that I like, is how it understands sociopathy as a white lady thing. So Cersei Lannister becomes really interesting because she is the white lady sociopath that is the most brutal, probably cast member, right, and storyline in the entire series. And I like that because I think we want to pretend like women are these, like, you know, enacting this Republican motherhood where they're doing this really gentle civic training of white kids, and they're not. Right. They're they are creating little Brett Kavanaugh's and little Brock Turner's and little Ivanka Trump's and little sociopaths all the time that want to be perfect and want to have absolute power and don't want to be wrong and don't want to take risks and don't want to play and don't want to have their own ideas. And 
that is what the normal is, I think, um, not just in like the Trump family and these exceptionally family wealthy families, but also that's how desegregation ended. It was white moms who created the segregation academies and killed desegregation because they didn't want their white girls going to school with black boys. And so it is the sociopathy is the white family and it's definitely the white church. And it, you know, creates these inequalities that stratify wealth so that white people never have to face accountability for the kind of inequality and brutality and violence that they enjoy, both as just a mundane aspect of their everyday capitalist lives and as, you know, their entertainment, which is reflecting their sociopathy back to them. It's totally interesting that in our free time, violence feels like most of the entertainment that we watch, like the most popular movies are superhero movies, like action films, violences. It is entertainment to us at this point. And uh, I mean, I think a lot of that is about like wish fulfillment and like fantasizing about power and like the attainment of power and the violence that accompanies it. Yeah, I agree. It's the reason I don't watch a lot of TV. I also, I was also at a bar once and I was, it, I was just in for a happy hour beer. And uh, these two dudes next to me were talking about Game of Thrones. And they're like, oh, do you watch that? And I was like, I watched the first season. It was pretty rapey. And they're like, that's how it was back then. And I was like, in the dragon days? What the fuck are you talking about? That's how. So these dudes, <laughs> the first go at me was like, rape is normal. And this is historical fiction. And I was just like, this is why I want watch it because you're a fucking chode and it's a whole army of your chody chodes who who say such things like this because you i I don't know you saw historical representation of a chamber pot in one scene you you want to somehow crib this to reality with the lady riding the drag what are you talking about and so for me that was all of the evidence that i needed about what the appeal of game of thrones is and you know and discourse is adjacent to it for white people. I mean, Game of Thrones is not a black show. People of color are not watching Game of Thrones and being like, oh, this is how it was. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine that comment coming out of the mouth of a person of color. It was so unreflexive and masculine and stu- and, and venal. So I just, um, I'm thinking about it because I've been watching it, but also I've just been thinking about it as a, a an ur text, like a training text for thinking about white power and familial power and, you know, monarchy and hereditary power, because that's how white people think about power is that all of these white families are just training to marry off their little sociopath daughters to little Brock Turner's to safeguard the family name. And right. And, and that's what motivates them to fantasize about family and connectivity their normal is just hoarding power through, you know, hereditary money, through inheritance and through trust funds and through, you know, passing down heirlooms. And there is this hereditary sense to that power that's super normal and super brutal. When I think about like what's normal for me and probably what's normal for most people, it's that we produce labor for other people all day and we don't really have access to power or excitement I I shouldn't normal is really mundane basically and so for me like I that's I I think what I meant 
earlier when I said I couldn't really, when I couldn't relate to, you know, Biden's call for a return to normal, because I'm like, it's really mundane. And for a lot of people, it's not even mundane. It's brutal. And there's a lot of suffering. But um, everyone wants to believe that they're exceptional. And so it's weird to to grapple with the banality of your like day-to-day life and your desire to be exceptional and like how much shared experience most of us really do have and how little that we relate to each other on like our common ground. I just don't think we spend enough time on what we have in common, which is like where I think there is power in normalcy, you know, because there is so much that we do share. That's one thing that I really like about living in a small town. Fayetteville is the smallest town I've ever lived in. And at least for me, I've built a huge community of people that I share a bunch of stuff with. That's totally not about work, which I share, I mean, very little with work because it's just so, it's so banal. But um, I like living here because there's a sense of the shared as the everyday. I also think it's why you and I like humor and play. Because I think that the exceptional moments of connection are found through play and laughter. And I feel like capitalism's normal is the absence of play and the absence of laughter and the absence of risk, obviously. So for me, um, you know, I think maybe it's because I'm a pro- I'm at midlife. I'm just like, fuck this. This is unfun. Everyone here is committed to the least fun version of their time here. Fuck it. I'm not doing that. It's not fun. I'm not doing that. And I feel like I, it's the, the, I think the pandemic for me has, has created a bunch of space to say, no, that's not fun. That produces suffering that produces labor for me. I'm not going to do that. I don't care how much you can't throw enough money at me to do that. That's very, seems very unfun. And I don't mean fun. Like it has to be all pleasure because I mean, I write about suffering for a living. So it's not like I mind talking about that as an ethical orientation, but in terms of who I want to spend my time doing work with, I'm not choosing to do it with people who are unfun ever again. I don't feel like I have to, I'm at an age where I give no fucks. I'm at a career place where I'm like, whatever I, whatever minimum goals that I set for myself. And I was like, I want to go be an academic. That seems like the right, is fine path. All those are accomplished. And I think for a lot of people who had any kind of mental space in the pandemic, there's a thinking about connection that creates opportunities to reassess normal. What is, what was I doing before that was toxic? What did I not want to spend my time doing? How did this shift in my time uh, change? And I think that that's true on the extremely brutal side of like, you know, the minimum wage workers and the grocery store clerks and the frontline workers in the hospitals, as much as it is for people who have been working from home for months and months and months with no support for childcare, And for the people who are singles and who've been cut off from a lot of their social support because of the pandemic. So If anything, I think this moment should really prompt us to reassess what things we're willing to give up to be normal and where we would like new normals to be um, the things that define our day-to-day lives. 